passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. As we uh, turn our attention to God's word this morning, I want to start with a question about hope. When you find yourself in the midst of despair or hardship, where do you place your hope? And that's one of the fundamental questions, I think, that we wrestle with when life seems to go south. Where do we find hope? What hope do we have for the future? So the person who's faced with a terrifying medical diagnosis, will medical care solve that issue? Is that where our hope is? Is our hope in this longing that life will one day return to normal? Or if someone finds themselves in, re in relational wreckage, is there any hope that things are going to get better? Or will there just be this feeling alone forever? And in a way, that's what this morning's text looks at. As one pastor points out, a Christian's hope is not rooted in complacency. Rather than worrying about things, we just say, you know what, we don't really care. Also, at the same time, it's, it's not found in optimism that things aren't as bad as they seem or things are bound to get better because why wouldn't they? Instead, the Christian's hope is rooted in the fact that God has directly intervened into a broken world, changed the course and the trajectory of humanity and history forever. That's the hope that we have as Christians. Paul describes the hope of the Christian life in this way. In Romans chapter 5, he says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is writing to a church that's finding itself in the midst of suffering, and Paul encourages them to persevere in light of the hope that is theirs in Christ Jesus. But what specifically is that hope? That's what Paul actually mentions in the following verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, the Christian hope is not found in some nebulous idealism or optimism, but the fact that God himself has, has intervened into human history. Hope is historical. It's not fanciful in the Christian life. And as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel, we actually see that same thing, that hope of God's intervention into the world, into David's life on full display. And that's what consumes the mind of David. This morning is our second to last sermon in the book of 2 Samuel. We've been working our way through 1 and 2 Samuel over the last couple years or so. And these two, this passage it looks at two songs that David wrote. Now remember where we are in the, the flow of 1 and 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 21, 22, 23, 24, these chapters are an epilogue to the entirety of 1 and 2 Samuel. They provide us with the lens through which we can evaluate the, the life of King David. So they provide us with an understanding of what we should conclude about the life of David. Now specifically, these two songs are found in the heart of this epilogue. And they help us grasp that for all the good that David did, he's a far cry, he's, he's a far cry from the one 
that we long for. He's a far cry from the one in which we hope. It's a reminder to us, not only that hope should not be found in some ancient king, but hope should not be found within ourselves as well. As we've seen over the course of 2 Samuel, this book is meant to remind us time and time and time again that for all the good that David might have done, for all the good that we might do in our lives, we need a better king. And that's where our hope is found, our better king. So as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through chapter 23, verse 7, that's a mouthful. Just wait until we get into the text. You'll soon notice that we have a lot of verses to cover. There's 80, 58 verses, not 80. Whew. It's going to be bad enough as it is. And to complicate matters, this is a very different type of passage than what we've looked at over the last several months. We've been working our way through narrative, a story that's relatively engaging. This is not a story. This is poetry. And when we read poetry in the Bible, we're not supposed to take every single word picture literally. It's not necessarily literal, but instead it's a cumulative description of who God is and what God has done for his people. So with that in mind, what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to paint with some very broad strokes. We'll look at the broad overview of these two songs following the general flow of each song. You'll notice in your sermon notes, whether that's in the Bible app or in the bulletin insert, you'll notice that I've provided this general structure for each song. And you'll notice that there's some symmetry in each of these songs. And that's intentional because each song is building to the heart, which is found in the middle. Now, it it might be tempting when we're looking at at this many verses with this type of language, it it might be tempting for us to get lost in the weeds. So what I want to do for us this morning as we begin is just from the very beginning, from the outset, be clear on what these two songs are about. And this is the heart of the text this morning. It's simply this, that, uh, that God is steadfastly committed to his king and by extension to the king's people. That's what these two songs are about. So don't, don't lose that. Don't, in the midst of all that we're going to look at, don't lose that overarching truth. At the end of the day, these two songs are a reminder that God is committed to his king and then by extension to those who belong to the king, the king's people. Now, as we work our way through this passage, these texts this morning, we'll see just why that matters for us today, how it will give us hope, especially when we find ourselves in the midst of a disconnect between the joyful picture that the Bible paints of the the Christian life and the reality that you might be experiencing right here and right now. Don't lose sight of this hope, that God is steadfastly committed to his King. And by extension, he's steadfastly committed to you if you are one of the king's people. Let's pray as we jump into God's word. Father, we do rejoice that you've given us your word, and in your word, you reveal to us where we can find true and lasting hope. We thank you for your king. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who has made a way for us to have everlasting hope in you. And we ask that you would use your word this morning written thousands of years before right now, and a thousand or so years before the time and the work of King Jesus to turn our hearts and affections toward him. We ask that 
through your spirit, you would speak to us, and that if any one of us here this morning is not found in you, we would run to you for hope, for joy forevermore. We ask that you would bless our time in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, our first song is found in the entirety of chapter 22. As I was reading through this chapter, and this might be a little pathetic, you can be the judge, my mind instantly went to the UK's national anthem, God Save the King. Now, maybe you're big into international national anthems. Maybe that's, you know, your cup of tea. No pun intended if you are following along with the British side there. I'm actually quite proud. I didn't have that in my notes. I'm patting myself on the back right there. Maybe you're familiar with those words, but in the more likely event that you are not familiar with the words of the British national anthem, I'll say that the words are quite, uh, quite powerful. And hopefully that doesn't come across as unpatriotic. Now, let me clarify. When, when I say that God saved the king is, is powerful, it's not powerful in the context of the British monarchy. But if you read the words of that national anthem in the, in the context of the ancient Israelite monarchy, far from, removed from what it's actually meant to be, uh, if you read it in the context of David and, and his kingdom and his descendants culminating in King Jesus, it, it makes an apt song, a powerful prayer for the king of God's people. It goes, God save our gracious king, long live our noble king, God save the king. Send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us, God save the king. And in a way, that's the focus of David's first song here. Not so much a prayer that God would save the king, but an acknowledgement of thanksgiving that God did save his king. Out of all of the afflictions, out of all of the trials that faced David, God proved himself faithful to save him time and time and time again. That's why our first song is not so much God saved the king, but God saved the king. Now you'll notice, as I mentioned earlier, this is a lengthy song. It's 51 verses. Because of its length, I want us to just take a moment to to understand the overarching flow of this song. I want you to imagine that you're on a cross-country road trip. And if you're on a cross-country road trip and you don't have the big picture, a general idea of where you are and where you are going coast to coast, it is very easy to get lost in the weeds. And in the same way, as you're looking at a passage of Scripture that's this big, a song of this scope, it is easy to get lost in the weeds if you don't have the big picture in mind. This song breaks into five parts, and that's, again, found in your sermon notes. It begins and ends with parallel sections, opening and closing with an overflow of praise from David for what God has done for him. The second and fourth sections are also in parallel. They're both looking at how God has intervened into David's life in order to save him. And that leaves us with the middle section, the third section, which focuses on why God saved David. And it's because, well, again, I, I'll, I won't spoil it. Why does God deliver David? And by extension, why does God intervene into our lives today as well? So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into the, our text, the first part of this song, verses 1 through 4. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 
And he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my God, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Before we get into the song itself, which is found starting in verse two, we're given this introduction. This song is written by David some point in his reign. The mention of King Saul suggests that it was written earlier in David's reign. I think the mention of all of his enemies suggests that it was written around the time of 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 8, where we're told that David has rest from all of his enemies. Now, regardless of the specifics, the focus of David's words here is relatively clear for us. As he reflects on what God has done for him, he can't help from singing. He can't stop himself from singing. And now maybe some of you can relate to that. That there are times in your life that you just want to burst into song. I think of the movie Elf with Will Ferrell, which is now over 20 years old, if you were wanting to feel old. And there's a scene in, uh, in the movie Elf. Buddy the Elf has just gone on a date with this coworker that he has a crush on. He's so overcome with emotion and joy that he bursts into his dad's office singing, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love. And it's this horribly awkward moment because his dad doesn't like song, to put it mildly. Now, if you're more reserved than Buddy the Elf or someone who likes to burst into song, the notion of being so overcome that you burst into song is relatively foreign. But the focus here in these first few verses isn't so much on awe that leads to song as it is just on awe itself. You see, every single one of us has experienced awe, whether it is standing out, looking at the first snow covering the ground at winter, or the majestic views of the mountains, or the sunrise, or the sunset, or maybe it's a last-second shot that wins your team the basketball game. Maybe it's an an awe at, at watching someone do something that they excel at, or maybe it's watching your child progress in whatever, whether that is speaking or sports or dance, music, you name it. When we experience awe, it leads us to a response. Sometimes that's stunned silence. Sometimes that is song. Sometimes it's screaming with joy. Sometimes it's running around in circles with joy like Jimmy Valvano when NC State won the national championship in 1983. The response looks different, but all of these are rooted in awe and joy. And that's David here. He cries out to God with awe-inspired gratitude. And the question is why? It's because God has shown up in his life. Now, what of you? While awe expresses itself in a thousand different ways in our lives, we have to ask ourselves right here, do we create space in our lives to to contemplate the things of God so that they will lead us to awe? That we will stand in awe of God. It might not overflow into song, but how often do you consider what God has done so that it will lead you to awe? And again, that's one of the takeaways for me as I've been reading this text is to keep my eyes open to how God is at work 
in order to cultivate more awe in my life. It may not mean extemporaneous song, and my family can testify that extemporaneous song from Jordan is more like cringe-inducing song. But when's the last time that you experienced marvel and awe at what God has done? Now, let's go ahead and keep moving. Uh, We're only looking at broad strokes here. The second section of David's song focuses on how God has intervened in order to deliver him. More specifically, this is the divine perspective on how God has intervened to save David. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support." He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The language here from David graphically describes God as one who is stirred to action on behalf of David. That David actually uses here language that's found in the story of the Exodus, of God's miraculous intervention on behalf of his people, and when God reveals himself at Mount Sinai to his people. Notice the parallels here. In Exodus chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. You catch the similarities there? David is saying that when he found himself in despair, he cries out to God, and God answers. How does God answer? Well, here, David says, he comes down from heaven and intervenes into David's life in order to save him. And the picture of God here is a terrifying one. 
because it describes his awesome power. And when we read these verses, verses 5 through 20 here in this passage, we're meant to be left wondering, well, if this is the type of God who intervenes, who can possibly stand in his way? Now, if you've been reading through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and after reading that, you might be left wondering, well, when does God do this? Because I've been following along in the story, I've been looking at David's entire life, and I've never read an event that fits this description. So, so is there something else that, that happened? Is this some other event? And, and if there is, why wasn't it mentioned in the story of First and Second Samuel? Hold on to that question, because we'll get to it in a moment. Now for now, I want us to turn to the next section, the heart of this song, on why God delivers Why does God deliver his people? We've actually already seen the beginning of this in verse 20. Verse 20, God delivers because he delighted in me. That's a beautiful thought. That should inspire awe all by itself. That God, the God that just got described in verses 5 through 20 in these terrifying terms, that this God delights in someone like David. Let's pick up in verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Why is it that God intervenes in David's life? Why is it that God delights in David? Well, because according to David here, God sees David's own righteousness, his moral living, and responds. And if you've been with us in 2 Samuel over the last several chapters, you're probably wondering, how on earth can David say that with a straight face? After all, isn't this the guy who slept with his army commander's wife, had his friend murdered to cover it up, and then spends the next several chapters basically doing the bare minimum in following God. How is it that this man can make such a claim? And honestly, I don't think we should make this into a bigger deal than it is. David is not claiming sinless perfection. That's a New Testament definition of the idea of righteousness. Instead, when we look at righteousness in the Old Testament, it generally just refers to someone who lives in light of the reality of God's existence. David is saying that God intervenes into his life because he takes God into account in every area of his life. 
that his life is structured around the word of God and how God wants his people to live. And even when he doesn't, which we've seen happens quite frequently with David, even when he doesn't do that, when he comes to his senses, it's in that moment he, he is quick to repent and run to God. In other words, David's claim here is that God has intervened into his life, and it's not a claim of his moral superiority, but rather his utter dependence upon the Lord. This special relationship that God has with his people, because David finds himself utterly depending upon God and upon his grace, he has molded his life around the commands that God has given and his life is shaped by the things that God delights in. You know, this is the way that God works. God delights in those who take seriously his commands and run to him when they become aware of the ways that their life might not be living up or lining up with the way that God would have them live. When Crystal and I lived in the Chicago area, I developed a friendship with a guy who said all the right things about wanting to follow Jesus, but there were a number of areas of his life where things just didn't line up with what God had commanded him. We would regularly talk about the gospel when we would get together. We'd regularly talk about his desire to follow Jesus. All the while, he continued to sleep with his girlfriend. All the while, he saw no value in gathering with other Christians. He had zero interest in conforming his life to the, the commands of God, and I could go on and on and on. And at one point, he was planning to open a, a new business in the suburb where we lived, and he asked me if I would be willing to come in and pray over his business so that it would be blessed by God. And I, I agreed to meet him, and, I, and when I met with him, I, I told him, you know, it's a good thing that you want your business to be blessed by God. That's a really, really good thing, and I'm going to pray for God's blessing. But at the end of the day, the reality is God extends his blessing to those who live in a way that honors him. That is what David has in mind here. That God delights in those who live their lives in light of him. Now that's not to say that we have to be perfect in order to earn God's favor, in order to be saved. No, grace is more than sufficient to save. But I love the way the Puritan Thomas Watson once put it, a smile on the face of God should be our greatest joy and a frown our greatest dread. That's what, Paul, what David has in mind here. Why is it that God is committed to David? It's because David has a heart that is committed imperfectly, very imperfectly, but a heart that is committed to the way of God in his life. That's the heart of this psalm. And again, there's more that we could say on that, but the song continues with the fourth section. Again, looking at how God intervenes to save David, though this time the focus isn't on the divine perspective. Instead, the focus is on the human perspective. Verse 32. For who is God but the Lord? 
And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there were none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. You know, earlier when we were looking at verses 5 through 20, I asked the question, where does God come down to save David as described in those, passages, in those verses? When does that happen? I said we would answer that question later. Well, that question is actually answered here in these verses. You see, the reality is we have to read verses 5 through 20 and 32 through 46 together because they describe the same thing, just two perspectives on the same thing. These two passages actually give us insight into how God takes care of his people. What looks like on the surface as ordinary means, verses 32 through 46, is actually God's supernatural intervention to come down from heaven for the sake of his people, as we see in verses 5 through 20. How is it that God works on behalf of his people? Well, notice how God describe, or David describes God's actions here in these verses. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. It's a reference to David's physical agility. He trains my hands for war as a reference to David's skill in battle. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them as a reference to David's victory in battle. You can look at all of these statements here, and all of them describe supernaturally ordinary things. Everything in these verses could be described as human achievement. But the person who knows God knows better. For in every single one of these things, it is God who descends from heaven to intervene into David's life to save. Do you realize that God does the exact same thing today. That God's intervention today is through his providence. It's through his purposeful sovereignty. It's ordering all things with intention and according to his plan, just like it was in David's day. When you're praying for a cure from cancer and chemotherapy does its work, God just came down from heaven and answered your prayers. He just intervened. When you're praying for a new job because your expenses outpace your income and you can't make ends meet, you can't provide for your family, and a new job comes up, the claim of this song is that God just intervened. Do you see what this song is trying to tell us? It's telling us that we have to adopt this vision 
of seeing our lives, our day-to-day lives through this lens. We have to be on the lookout for how God intervenes and comes down. And most of the time, that comes through the ordinary day-to-day. When you're praying for your son in preschool to find a friend and they come home from school and they say, I played with someone new today. God just came down. God intervenes into the lives of his people through his providence. And when we take these verses in connection with what we read earlier, we are given a vision of how we must look at life. The question of this song is, do we have eyes to see it? Are we even looking for how God is at work? Here's the sobering reality of this passage, that if you don't have this type of perspective, if you don't have this type of vision, then you will rarely, if ever, explode in awe for God's intervention in your life like David does here. It just won't happen. Because you are missing the thousands of ways that God is involved in your life right now. Saving you right now. It might seem ordinary. It might look ordinary. But 2 Samuel chapter 22 is anything but It reveals us the reality, the divine perspective, as well as the human perspective. And when you realize that, then it leads you to explode with joy, just like what we see from the final section of this song from David. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever." Why does David praise God? It's because God is committed to his king, to David. And that means that God is regularly at work in the mundane and the ordinary on David's behalf and in our behalf as well. Praise the Lord indeed. Now, if you've been following the time I'm looking at your notes. You're almost certainly nervous right now because I said there were two songs. We've only covered one so far. Mercifully, the second song is only seven verses and it's relatively straightforward. It starts with a declaration from David that God is speaking through him. Verse one. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. Now it's notable here that David acknowledges that this is an oracle, that the spirit of the Lord speaks through him. And apparently these words right here were a specific revelation. They're prophetic. 
That's what the word oracle means. It's a prophecy. Now, David is not normally considered to be a prophet, and yet in this moment, he is serving in a prophetic role. He is writing down something near the end of his reign that refers to something that is coming, referring to God's commitment to him in the future. So he's focusing here in this song because it is an oracle, because God is speaking through him. He's talking about what God is going to do for David in the future. And as we saw, these are the last words of David. So this is near the end of David's life. So we're wondering, well, how exactly is God going to do something for David in the future when David doesn't have much of a future left? Verse 3. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. We've used these verses here as the lens through which we evaluate all of David's reign as we've been looking at the epilogue. And that's a part of their purpose, but, but the prophetic nature becomes clearer when we translate verse 3 a little bit more rigidly, or literally. I'll be the first to say that this is awkward, but I think it, it reveals what David is saying here. So this is a literal translation of verse 3. A ruler over mankind, a righteous one, a ruler in the fear of God. There's no verb. It's just a declaration, almost like saying, this is coming someday. Significantly, this word ruler here has not been used at all in First and Second Samuel. It's referring to something or someone different. And just as significantly, This ruler will not be a ruler just over Israel, which is commonly referred to as my people in the Old Testament, but as we see here, over all of mankind. So David's last words prophesy that there is a ruler coming. A new type of king is coming. And this king will be the righteous one who rules in the perfect fear of God. In other words, David is saying that he is a shadow, and yet the the real thing is coming. It's coming in its fullness. And because of that, this ruler's kingdom will be a place of perfect peace and joy. That's the heart of verse 4. David describes this kingdom uh, uh, of the coming king as a place of perfect flourishing, just like the bright sunshine that dawns on a beautiful summer and morning and it inspires joy and peace and contentment. That's what this this kingdom will be like, just like a gentle rain nourishes the grass, so it's healthy and vibrant and flourishes and grows and it's full of health and life. That's what this king's kingdom will be like. Where will this king come from? That's what David describes in verse 5. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made me made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. I love that word, secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? See, David rightly understands that the prophetic words of verse 3 and verse 4 have to be understood in light of the secure, 
unshakable, unbreakable promise that God has already made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where, where God promises that one day there's going to be a king who comes from David's offspring who is going to reign forever. And here we see that this king will reign over a perfect kingdom because he himself will be perfectly righteous and perfectly just, perfectly good. In short, David's final words here are about a better king who is coming. You know, we began our time this morning looking at at hope, that there is a great hope that belongs to the people of God. It is that God is committed to his king, to King Jesus, who as we stand on this side of the cross, looking backward rather than David looking forward, for us, we can joyfully say, not that a better king is coming, but we can say a better king has come and will come again. This king has come, and while his kingdom may not fully be established, those who belong to the king, they get a glimpse of that kingdom. That's described in verse 4. Today, what's more, our hope is, rea- is rooted in the reality that this kingdom will one day come, be established in its fullness when he returns because a better king has come and is coming again. When we read this second song and the hope that it offers in light of the first song, all about God's regular and continuous intervention on behalf of his people throughout the ages in the most ordinary of ways, we are given unshakable confidence that God, this God who has made those promises, will bring them to pass. This is why we said at the beginning of our time this morning that these two songs are all about God's commitment to his king and ultimately to the king's people. That God is trustworthy. He does exactly as he has said that he will do. And if we belong to the king, joy and gladness and flourishing of his kingdom, verse 4, is ours forever. Now, you might have noticed that we haven't finished this song. The song actually ends with a warning of what awaits those who don't receive the king with gladness in verse 6. But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. For the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The word worthless here is an important word that we've seen over and over in First and Second Samuel. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it was used to describe Eli's son, sons. In 1 Samuel chapter 25, it was used to describe Nabal. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, it was used to describe Sheba, among other people that it describes. And in each of these examples, we're given an example of what does it mean to be worthless. And it's someone who has a blatant disregard for the things of God, even uses God to, uh, to accomplish their own purpose, for their own pleasures in this life. That's what Eli's sons do. A worthless man is someone who lives their life as though God doesn't exist and shows no concern for anyone but themselves, just like Nabal does. It's someone who rebels against God's chosen king, like Sheba does. And here's the warning that we have to hear from this text. While worthless may appear to be prosperous, and they might appear to be victorious, and have everything that they could ever want, we know the true end. 
We know that when the king returns and establishes his kingdom, they will be cast out by the king himself. But here again, in the midst of this warning, is an extension of grace. Because it is a marvelous gift that when the king first came, when Jesus first came, he did not come to bring judgment, but to bear it. And he waits. Even after his victorious resurrection, Jesus waits, longing patiently for those who reject him to come into his family. Jesus does not bring condemnation, but an invitation to join his kingdom. What grace from this king. These two songs should inspire awe. Awe in our lives for what the king has done. Longing for the king's return. And encourage all of us to look at our lives through the lens of God's daily intervention on our behalf. Because God is steadfastly committed to his king and to the king's people. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a gift your word is. We ask that even as we look at David overflowing with awe for what you have done, we ask that you would give us eyes to look at life the exact same way that David does. To slow down and to contemplate life through the lens of your intervention so often through ordinary means. Knowing that it is anything but. Help us, God. Help us to stand in awe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.